This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26, and then continuing through chapter 2, verse 5. It is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 2, 5. This is the word of the Lord. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word again this evening, we pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would know the glorious truth that we know, that we have heard, that we have received in your gospel. Though it often is weak and despised and undesirable in the eyes of the world, it is more precious than anything. And I pray that you would write that truth on our hearts again this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, part of the task of preparation for the ministry that I underwent and that uh, most, at least in our Reformed tradition, undergo is attending seminary. I attended seminary for three years, and at the end of that time, I found myself doing a lot of reflection. I thought a lot, and I still think about the people that I met along the way, others in seminary, others who started out on the same road. Some didn't make it. They didn't make it to the end. You you wouldn't think that this would happen. There's this sort of perception and a lot of corners of the church and among a lot of Christians that 
Seminary is like this extra holy thing for really mature Christians, but there are guys who come to seminary and they end up leaving the faith. Or they come to seminary as new Christians and they just get very confused and they get very, uh, I guess, lost and swept up in the things of the world. They don't persevere. One of the things about seminary is that while it has church purposes, it's a school. As a school, it deals with all kinds of scholarship and a lot of scholarship in our day, particularly in the areas of the study of Scripture and matters of the Christian faith, is not all that interested in faith. It's not interested in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's more interested in speculating into new things, new things that will get you published. But sometimes these new things are explicitly and actively seeking to undermine or destroy Christianity. So some people come to seminary, they end up getting blindsided by this stuff, and then they get swept up into what the critics of Christianity are saying. Some end up finding themselves drawn towards Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. They end up leaving the Reformed and the Protestant church for something else. Now, this isn't just a seminary problem. Something that's really popular in our day is this idea of deconstruction or deconversion of one's Christian faith. We've seen in recent years a lot of once prominent Christian figures, be they pastors, authors, musicians, what have you, come out and publicly declare that they are no longer Christian. When this happens, the world often applauds because um, the world sees Christianity as some relic of a bygone age that it has moved beyond. They see Christianity as too exclusive, too narrow-minded, too anti-intellectual to really work in this day and age. The Christian church in recent decades has done a lot of parroting the culture and the world around it. And even in Reformed churches, we feel that pressure. A lot of churches have these big shows, these big spectacles in their worship, where they have bands and lights and smoke machines, and they're indecipherable from concerts and other forms of entertainment. People want to hear shorter sermons because they get bored. There might be a little bit of scripture in them, but mostly it's just good advice for how to live. Churches don't like to teach doctrine anymore because it's divisive. As I mentioned last week, looking at the previous passage, we want the world to think of us as smart and we want it to think of us as cool so that it will come see what we have to offer and so that it won't hate us. So churches and ministries go this route of trying to look like the world, only to be surprised when the people that come from it, even these prominent, I guess you could say celebrities that it produces, or even its ordinary members, and especially its children, end up looking like and leaving for the world. When we're parroting the world, the world always ends up doing it better. This is the world in which we live. And in a time like this, we as Christians need to be reminded of who we are, where we came from, and what we are here to do. Remember last week that we were looking at the Apostle Paul writing to a young, troubled, divided church in Corinth 
to do this very thing, remind them of who they are, where they came from, and what they are to do. Remember, things in Corinth were bad. They're really bad. The church had broken into factions around their favorite teachers. I mentioned my reflections on seminary because in a lot of ways, seminary is that sort of thing. It's guys picking their favorite scholars, their favorite teachers, their favorite movements to get behind, and secondary doctrines to divide over, not dissimilar to what was happening in Corinth. Also in Corinth, there was great sin in the church. Later on, Paul got, gets into the nasty sexual immorality. He gets into abuse of the Lord's Supper. He gets into lawsuits between believers and total chaos in worship. The church in Corinth badly needs those reminders, and that is what Paul gives them. But we also need these reminders in the day and age in which we live. So tonight we're going to look at Paul's reminders tonight from the end of chapter 1 and beginning chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians in three points. First, we see a peculiar choice in chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Second, we see a powerful Christ in verses 30 and 31. And then third and finally, we see him proclaimed with certainty. That's in the verses we read from chapter 2. So we have a peculiar choice and a powerful Christ proclaimed with certainty. We will see tonight that the gospel is sufficiently powerful to do what it is purposed to accomplish, even if the world wants something different. So first, we will look at the peculiar choice. Now remember, in verses 18 through 25, that Paul has just laid out how the gospel is foolishness to the world, yet is the very wisdom and power of God for salvation. This is God's plan. This is God's design. God has chosen to work in this world through what most would consider to be a foolish means and a foolish message. This message of God the Son becoming a lowly servant who suffers and dies and is raised from the dead. Greeks and Jews alike rejected this message as foolishness. It's not smart enough. It doesn't line up with the world's expectations of what is wise, what is worthy of study, what is worthy of philosophical reflection. Or others think that it's not powerful enough. For instance, for the Jews, it wouldn't overthrow Rome and give them back their country. It doesn't make a this-world kingdom with a this-world king sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so many in Paul's day, just as in our day, reject this gospel. And yet, for those whom God has called, the gospel is nothing less than the very wisdom and power of God. And God expressing his wisdom and power through this thing that the world finds foolish carries on into the kind of people that he chooses. And Paul brings this up in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. See, there are many times in the Bible where we see God choosing what the world would find to be the lesser thing as his chosen instrument. Think back to the Old Testament. You could think of how the younger 
at least externally less manly Jacob was chosen over the older, strong hunter Esau to carry on God's covenant promises. God chose David, the youngest of the sons of Jesse, to be his great king. In the New Testament, Jesus chose a rather interesting band of disciples. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, other various things. They were certainly not the most glamorous bunch of people. Now, this is not that Jesus only works through the uneducated or lower class people. Jesus did count among his followers and friends, some wealthy. You could think, for instance, of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, Paul himself was something of a scholar. He would have had a proper Jewish legal education, and he was a Roman citizen. He would have been up the social ladder a few rungs. But the point here is that there's no particular standard of worldly wisdom or power that God is looking for in those that he calls to be his people. The church is not a country club where you have to have a certain income level or a job description or a degree to join. Now, someone Paul was writing to might read this and they might think, well, Thanks, Paul, for reminding me that I am not wise or powerful or of noble birth. But there is a reason he does this. It's in the first thing he says that they should reflect on their calling. Basically, think about why you are here. What brought you here? It's not the powerful rhetorical or intellectual appeal of the gospel. As we've already discussed, the gospel is weak and foolish on those terms. It's not because you are wise or strong or noble or wealthy or anything else, because you very well may not be. And even if you are, you are surrounded in church by people who are probably not. Paul was reminding the church in Corinth, and it is also a reminder to us, that the reason we are here is because of God's calling. Apart from it, we would not believe this gospel. We only believe because of the power of God, because God has chosen us to believe it, because he has worked the gospel in us by his Holy Spirit and granted us faith and new life. If you are a Christian, it is by no virtue or power or merit of yours. It is by God's sovereign choice, and it is in Christ alone. That is what we see in these next few verses, 27 through 29. We see here that God has chosen three kinds. He has chosen the foolish, the weak, and the low. Now, why has he done this? To shame the wise and the strong and to bring into being the things that are not. God is not doing a work of redemption in this world that is just meant to go along and get along with this world. God is remaking the world. The gospel brings in a new world order. You could think, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, all of the blessed are statements that Jesus makes that often reverse worldly expectations. These are the kinds of attributes that are prioritized, that are commanded in the Bible, things like weakness, things like meekness, things like mourning. These aren't exactly the things that, according to our human nature, that we're inclined to sign up for. 
Do you want to be poor in spirit? Because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. No, you probably don't wake up in the morning thinking, I want to be poor in spirit today. Or, do you want to mourn? Well, no, that means you've experienced loss. That means you've experienced tragedy. Do you want to be meek? No, we usually want to be and try to be strong. Do you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, no, we usually think we're pretty righteous already. That's a problem with us. Do we want to be merciful? Oftentimes, we want revenge. We want people to get what they deserve. Are we pure in heart? No. (laughs) Are we peacemakers by nature? No, that's difficult. We often like to be a part of conflict. Do we want to be persecuted? Of course not. But this is the kind of the order and the kind of kingdom that God in Christ is bringing through the gospel and by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is an overturning of this present world and of this present age. But why? Why this order that to us seems so strange, seems so unnatural? Well, we get the answer in verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. God is working out things in this world and in this age for his glory, not ours. He is working in this world and having success in the world and drawing a people to himself in such a way that we can't take any credit for it. We don't get to brag about it. We don't get to claim the victory because if we were the ones in charge, this is certainly not the way we would have done it. We wouldn't do it through weakness, through struggle, through rejecting the norms and the principles around which the world organizes itself. We have God drawing in a people that by worldly standards doesn't make sense with a message that by worldly standards doesn't make sense. Now, Why is that? What is the purpose of this? Well, this brings us to our second point. Having looked at the peculiar choice, we now look at the powerful Christ. So look at the beginning of verse 30. But of him, that is of God, you are in Christ Jesus. The purpose of this undertaking, this peculiar people called by a peculiar gospel, is to unite them to Christ. How are we united to Christ? We are united to Christ by faith. It is a personal, inseparable union. It is the sort of union that a head shares with its body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, that's the very image that Paul uses to describe it. The work of the gospel is to unite us to Christ and to make us his body, his people. Now with that union comes blessings and benefits. We see in the rest of this verse four of these benefits, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now we've already talked a good bit about wisdom. The world's wisdom rejects God and the things of Christ. But true wisdom comes through the knowledge of God, through the word of God, and through the application of these things to us by the Holy Spirit. True wisdom is knowledge of and belief in the gospel. Christ has become for us wisdom. By our union to him, we can believe what we ought to believe concerning him. 
And then these remaining three benefits help us to further understand what Christ has become for us. In our union with Christ, Christ becomes our righteousness. That this happens shows us that apart from him, there was something wrong with our righteousness. We had no righteousness. We were unrighteous. Now, it is important for us to remember this because we all have a natural inclination to self-righteousness. We think that we're good. We think that we are righteous. Part of why people find the gospel so offensive and so foolish is because it requires them to believe that they are sinners. People like to believe that overall they're pretty good and that God, if there is one, will accept how good they are. As long as we're more good than bad, to borrow the language of accounting, as long as we end up in the black and not in the red at the end, with more good than bad, that'll be good enough for God. But the gospel doesn't allow this. And the gospel man was created good, but has fallen into sin. We all share the guilt of Adam's first sin, as well as our actual sins, the sins that we have each and every one committed against God's holy law. And there's nothing we can do on our own to undo or to make up for that. And for that, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. We do not have a righteousness of our own. We do not have a righteousness that is free from the stain of sin. We need someone else's righteousness. We need an alien righteousness to be credited to us. And in Christ, we receive his very righteousness. The righteousness of the sinless God-man who kept the law perfectly on our behalf and suffered and died to pay the penalty of our sin. This righteousness is what we receive in our justification. One of these benefits that Paul says we have. But as verse 30 also tells us, we receive sanctification. We are made holy. We are conformed into the image of Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we strive against sin and the devil in this life. Now, we don't do this out of our obligation to try to save ourselves but because we have been redeemed in Christ. And so in thankfulness and gratitude and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we strive to do what is pleasing to him. And finally, we have redemption. We have been purchased. There is a change of ownership of us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. We belong to Christ. Our sins are forgiven We have eternal life and salvation. All of these things work together as God's plan for our redemption, and all of them are blessings that come from our union with Christ. They come as gifts of free grace. As we are chosen by the Father, and this work is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So none of this is from us. We didn't do this We didn't earn this. We wouldn't even believe this if God didn't grant us the ability to believe. So boasting in anything about us or in us is out of the question. Paul gets this. Here he makes a reference to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, to drive this home. 
If we boast in anything, it is in God and the great things that he has done for us and in us and through us. We boast in the saving power of Christ that we have experienced. More wise and more powerful than anything else we could conceive or imagine. So what do we do with this knowledge of where we have come from? This peculiar choice of us to be God's people. And the purpose for that choice, our union to this powerful Christ. Well, this brings us to our third and final point. Proclaimed with certainty. Paul at the opening of chapter 2, because of the chapter divisions in the Bible, they're not original and they don't always divide text the best way. Paul describes how he came to the Corinthians. Paul and his associates planted the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Now you might remember he that would be just after Acts 17, which we talked about some last week, Paul's confrontation with the philosophers at Athens. But so in Acts 18, Paul comes to Corinth, and he was there a while. He was there for 18 months. And that account in Acts describes a tumultuous time. Paul first goes to the Jewish synagogue there and is rejected. So he goes to the Gentiles. He sets up shop in a house next door to that synagogue, and many of the Gentiles come to faith in Christ and are baptized. In Acts 18.9, Paul receives in a vision this word from the Lord. It says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silence. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. God had a purpose in drawing Paul to Corinth to preach this gospel and to draw in the people that the Father had called. Now, it was often a difficult task. Paul would later be brought up on trial by the Jews in Corinth, though he ended up being released. Now, it could be easy to see why Paul, in the face of such rejection and opposition, might begin to doubt and be afraid, and why God would give him such a word of reassurance. And so here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see Paul's own account of his coming to Corinth. Verse 1, he says, he did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, it's not that Paul never did that. Remember, he did attempt something of that sort right before in Acts 17 at Mars Hill, where he went to the great philosophers and tried to confront their philosophies, presented the gospel in such a way that the philosophers could make sense of it. And it was a little effective. We see that a few there did believe. God did open their eyes to salvation. But most of the people at Mars Hill mocked and rejected Paul. They couldn't get over this resurrection from the dead. So what does Paul do in Corinth? Well, in verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul came to Corinth with the gospel. That was it. He didn't try to make it smart. He didn't try to make it cool. He didn't try to make it culturally sensitive. He just gave it to them straight. And God encouraged him. And God blessed his efforts. And so there was founded this church in Corinth. Paul gives more details in verses 3 and 4. He was there in weakness and fear and trembling 
See, the gospel faced a lot of resistance in Corinth. The Jews wanted it out of the city, and they tried to get Paul in trouble with the law to do it. We don't get much more detail than that, but weakness, fear, and trembling are all things I think we can understand at least a little. There's difficulties in this life. There's difficulties in the church. There's difficulties that come with remaining faithful to Christ. Paul continues, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul was practicing and proclaiming a faith not rooted in anything that the world has to offer, but in single-minded devotion to Christ and to his gospel, to Christ crucified, and the power that gospel brings as it is worked in people by the Holy Spirit to save them from their sins and unite them to Christ as a people for his name. We face in our present age increasing hostility to the power of this gospel of grace. This idea that Christ gives to us fallen sinners salvation and life. The world wants something else. The world does not want confrontation in its sin, but validation. Meanwhile, the world wants to look at the sins of others and pronounce condemnation, cancellation, shunning, the destruction of those who do not so validate others in their sins. Many in this world demand a political and societal transformation and see a gospel that is oriented to a life after this one as a compromise or a refuge in which to hide racism or sexism or bigotry or other kinds of injustice. So remaining faithful to and proclaiming this gospel in this world, it's going to cost us. As a pastor friend once told me, it may cost us friends. It may cost us jobs. And we have to learn to be okay with that. But we can do this as Paul did by having what Paul describes in the last verse of our passage tonight. Verse 5. We have a faith not resting in the power and wisdom of man, but in God. So we have seen tonight Paul's case that the gospel is sufficiently powerful to do what God purposes it to do. We have seen in this text the peculiar choice of a seemingly weak and unwise people to be God's people. We have seen the powerful Christ that God unites us to and thus gives us all the blessings of our salvation. And then finally, we have seen how this Christ was and is and can be proclaimed with confidence, as Paul did in Corinth and as the world needs to hear now, even as it bristles, even as it opposes us, even as it rejects us. For Paul in Corinth... The gospel was all he had, and it was all he needed. For those of us who are in Christ, the gospel is ultimately all we have. It is the only thing that will outlast the things of this world, the world's sins, the world's fads, and the world's hatred and rejection. We cling to Christ despite the world's rejection, because only there will we find salvation for our souls. We can say to Christ what Peter did in John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
The world, though it hates these words, is perishing for a lack of them. And it can never give us anything that will compare. So we can say with Paul that the gospel is all we have and that it is all we need. God will use it to bring his purposes to pass. We can cling to it with confidence and share it with confidence, knowing that it is by God's power that it changes hearts and minds and lives and even the world. Our confidence and faith are not in ourselves, but in the God who is able to do these things. Perhaps tonight you hear this gospel and you, like Paul's critics, think it is foolish. Well, friend, apart from Christ, you will perish. Whatever you are chasing after in this world will not save you. You will die. This world will end. And nothing else you are holding to will be worth anything or will save you on the last day. And yet in Christ, you are offered forgiveness of sins, righteousness, salvation, and everlasting life. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. But if you are here tonight and you are in Christ, perhaps you feel the weight of the opposition from the world. You feel the world's rejection. You feel the hostility from the world towards Christ and towards Christians and toward the church. You can be confident that even in places and times of resistance, God will use the gospel to accomplish his purposes. We can have confidence. We can have trust, just as Paul did. We can come with nothing but Christ and him crucified and know and expect that to do exactly what God wills for it to do. And we can trust in him to bring that increase. And so may we all be confident in this gospel for ourselves and for the lost and dying world in which we live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. We thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that apart from it, we would have no life. We would have no hope. We would have none of the blessings which we receive in Christ. And so we praise you and we thank you for our great salvation that we have. And in light of this great salvation we have, I pray that we would be confident to take this gospel to the world around us, to the people we know, the people we see, this community and this world that so desperately need it. And may we trust that it is by your power and your power alone that the gospel was made effective. It's not because of us, it is no grounds for us to boast, but that that work comes entirely from you, and we will give you the glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.